0: I wanted to start this morning um, by opening it up to you guys for questions, since we didn't get to questions last week. And so, if there were any questions from last week or even, even the previous weeks that have been just percolating in your minds, and you just want to ask those questions just in case we don't get to them at the end. I know, that, I know how good I am about Opening it up for questions at the end. So I wanted to, if any of you have any questions now or throughout, um, Bob's back there with the microphone and he can wander over to you. Otherwise, we'll get started. Are there any questions? Yes. How do you answer Islam? <laughs> How do you answer Islam in 30 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> That's a <whole> right. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'll give you I'll give you a quick answer, and I want to point you to to additional resources because it's interesting. I was just I was just uh, listening to an interview with David Wood yesterday, who was he was one of the resources that I had on the board last week, and um, he had some he had some pretty quick things to say. Um, but first of all, the the important thing, one of the most important things for believers to keep in mind when they when they talk to a Muslim is the first pushback you're gonna get if you talk about Jesus, if you talk about anything in the Bible, they're immediately gonna tell you your Bible is corrupted, I'm not going to hear anything about your Bible. So don't, don't talk to me about Jesus uh, being crucified, don't talk to me about Jesus rising from the dead because that's not in our Quran and your Bible is corrupted. Um, so that is the first thing to keep in mind when you're dealing with a Muslim. And um, another thing to, to really keep in mind is the, the depth of commitment that they have, not only to their own convictions, but also how deeply wound it is into their culture and their family and, how, and the cost, how much it's gonna cost them. I mean, if, if, if your kids wanted to become a wanted to leave the faith and become a, a an atheist or a Buddhist. Well, you would be heartbroken, but you you probably would not um, seek to kill them or even disown them or disinherit them or not talk to them. But in that culture, it's very costly. So um, keep that in mind that when they're considering Christ, they would be guilty of what I talked about last week, the greatest sin in Islam, the sin of shirk, which is attributing partners to God. Because they would be, you would, when you accept Christ, you are saying, Jesus is God, and Jesus died, rose again, paid for my sins. And they, they have this understanding of, that is the unforgivable sin. So if I consider, if I consider what you're saying, I can face you know, having my head chopped off or, um, or at least losing my entire community, my entire family, and I might be guilty of the unforgivable sin. So, all, all of that uh, is good to keep in mind. Now, what I want to do is direct you to… Um, that YouTube channel. It was Act 17 Apologetics' YouTube channel. It's David Wood's YouTube channel. And he has this great, I mean, he has a lot of great videos on there answering Islam specifically. But he talks, there's this one video where he talks about these verses in the Quran that demonstrates how the Quran cannot be the word of God. And, it, and these verses in the Quran, interestingly, tell Christians, go back to your gospel And read your gospel, and they tell Jews, go back to your Torah and read your Torah. So, on one hand, they will tell you the Word of God, the Bible is corrupted, but in their own Quran, it says, hey, Christians, go read the gospels. Hey, Jews, go read the Torah. So, there's this thing that they have to deal with there. So, those are good things for believers to know, and that is, I mean, that's not even scratching the surface. There's, there, there are so many things to keep in mind with Islam, um, so I cannot do it justice in, in a short period of time. But uh, just one other thing that I want to reiterate from last week is that when you're dealing with Muslims, expect the forceful pushback because that that's just culturally that's just how they deal with people that's just how they are, and it's nothing personal it, we we as Americans can get sort of whoa you you know are you angry are you what's the deal here but but that is just their culture to be very passionate, very forceful, and if you're not forceful in return back to them, they're, they're not going to respect you, and they're going to think, you just don't take your own beliefs seriously. So, I, want to, I like to encourage believers, be, you know, don't be forceful in a false sort of rude, mean way, but be comfortable with, the, with pushing back to them in, with equal amount of force because they're more likely to listen to you that way. Good question. Acts 17 apologetics on YouTube. Uh, yes. Oh wait, here comes Bob. I just thought real quickly it might answer some questions. Uh, Nabil Qureshi's books, mm-hmm. uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I don't know if you mentioned that to them. You know, he got cancer, died. Right. Courageously, friend of Ravi. So. I didn't mention I didn't mention the book only because of its biographical in nature, but. That is a fantastic book. And uh, what Jeff was talking about, he was a guy named Nabil Qureshi. And actually, David Wood, whom I've talked about, was. Highly instrumental in bringing him to Christ because they were roommates in college for years that 's actually how David Wood became so knowledgeable on Islam because here he had this college roommate who is a muslim he didn't david wood 's background is atheism, so he was more interested in in uh, studying atheism and ministering to atheists, but he has this Muslim roommate, so he studied up like crazy on Islam. And uh, eventually, Nabil comes to Christ. He wrote this book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's his biography of how he came to Christ and all the ways that God worked through, through David and other apologists. And um, he has so many YouTube videos. He has now gone on to be with the Lord. He died of cancer of a year ago. It was a year ago. Um, so he is, he is marvelous, and he is a great, he's a great resource as well. All right, well, let's get started. Today, we are going to be talking about the problem of evil. Um, the problem of evil is the greatest obstacle to belief in God today. It, people, it's not the only obstacle to belief in God, but, what you're going to hear when you talk to people who are, who are not believers and they'll, they'll have objections, it is how can there be a God with so much evil and suffering in the world? And this is a real, a real issue to people in our culture today. So I hope, I hope that you will pay close attention and I want to, in, in this talk, I want to give you tools t- to talk to other people about this issue, but also we as believers, if we're honest, we struggle with this as well because we can't live in this world with all of the pain and suffering that goes on and be unaffected by it and have these thoughts that go in our in our mind. No matter how convinced we are of God and, and what Jesus did for us, we can have these, but, God, how, how can you let this happen? How did you let this happen? Why would you let this happen? And so I want to, I want to give us also tools in our quiet moments when we have these these um, difficult thoughts, how to, how to deal with that as well. So here are some resources that I'd like to... Just uh, start off with um, these are there. There are so many books, there are so many uh, YouTube videos, sermons, etc., on this issue because this is such a big issue. The reason why I highlight these in particular, um, why suffering that book deals with deals with uh, the twofold problem of of this issue in particular. It deals with the the intellectual and logical arguments on one hand, but it also deals with the emotional and pastoral issues on the other hand. So, it's a great book for both of those. Um, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, I, I love that book too. It, it deals with the theological issue of, of the problem of pain and suffering. And Tim Keller does such a fantastic job with it in that When as a believer, that book is not for non-believers because because it deals with it from the perspective of you're already a believer. How do you deal with this issue from a theological perspective? Here's God, and how do I view this? Um, Then the last two C.S. Lewis books deal with the issue, the problem of pain deals with the issue from more of a a, a clinical sort of logical perspective. This was written much earlier in his life when he hadn't, well, he had gone through pain and suffering, but he was he was working through the logical issue, so he comes, he, he works through the arguments, but a grief observed was his personal journals that he wrote when his wife died. So it is very raw, and he never intended to publish them. They were, they were personal to him. But his stepson said, you know, if, if we publish these, these could really benefit other people who are going through difficult times. So, so um, it's, it's both sides of that, because, because this problem is, it, there, are, there are two sides to it. There is this logical problem of evil that people want to just have intellectual arguments about, how can there be a God with so much pain and suffering in the world? But there's the emotional problem, problem of evil that is the larger issue. That is the larger thing that people really struggle with deep down. So um, this issue is, is something that is fairly personal to me. And it's something that the, the problem of evil itself. And it's something that I've spent literally years thinking about. Um, I encourage you guys to to um, really have your eyes and ears open when you go out and you talk to people for these kind of statements that people make when they object to belief in God, because we've all haven't we all been affected by pain and suffering? There's if if you haven't, you will. I promise you that because. Mm-hmm. That is one of the promises in Scripture. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. And it is all throughout the New Testament, we are promised hardship and tribulation. I mean, we all have our own stories. My, my mom, her firstborn daughter died when she was six years old. Um, I, know, I know two men personally, I'm friends with them, Two men, personally, whose wives left them, took the kids, alienated the kids from them, and to this day, the kids won't speak to the dads. They're friends of mine, so I know their story. It's not some, yeah, but what really happened? No, I mean, and moms and dads, can you imagine, maybe some of you have had to deal with this, and you don't have to imagine, but can you imagine your kids going through such incredible pain and hardship, and you can't do anything about it. You can pray, and you do pray, but you can't fix it, and you have to just watch them go through it, and you have to come alongside them, but you can't solve their problem and you can't rescue them out of their pain. I know what that's like. I've gone through that several times with my daughter, and God knows what that's like too. Because, yes, we can say God is all-powerful and He is all-knowing, but if He were to come and fix every single problem, that has other problems as well. So, most of the time, you know, He has His reasons for not intervening and not overriding free will and not um, not doing something different in the situation, so oftentimes He doesn't want the pain that is going on, but He he watches and He experiences all that we're experiencing as well. But even with all of that, even with all of that, every instance of pain and suffering and heartbreak that goes on, this problem is one of the, if not the, best apologetics for the existence of God. That may sound counterintuitive on its face because because it's also the biggest objection to coming to God, but it is one of the best apologetics for the existence of God, and here's why. Because if there's no God, then there's no evil, and there's also no good. So, the person who wants to complain, there can't be a God because there's so much evil. Well, if there's no God, then what you call evil is just a personal preference of something you don't like. And that's all it, that's all it boils down to. So, it, it, it doesn't, saying that does not make it any more emotionally satisfying. It doesn't, it, it's not going to have the non-believer say, oh, well, you made a good point. I'll believe in God now. But it is, it, it is something that you, you really can't get around. So, I've mentioned mentioned that there are two issues with the problem of evil, the logical problem of evil and the emotional problem of evil. I'm going to cover very quickly the logical problem of evil just because you ought to know about it. You might get get this um, once in a while. So it goes like this, and there there are different versions of it, but I'm condensing it down to this. If an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and omniscient God exists, then evil does not there is evil in the world, therefore, an an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient God does not exist. Now, this argument started decades ago, well, longer ago than that, but really in in force um, decades ago, and it's really been... Honestly, dismissed. Nobody really takes this logical problem of evil seriously anymore because the only thing you need to defeat it is to demonstrate that could there possibly be some reason for God to allow evil and suffering? If there is maybe some reason, then it defeats this argument. So that doesn't deal with the emotional problem of evil. Yes, Brett. Can you repeat that that statement? Sure. Um all the all that is necessary statement Oh, it, oh, sorry. how about that? Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought we were on that slide, so there you go. <laughs> um does that does that answer your? Okay, great, great, there it is up there so but like I, like I already said, and I'm going to reiterate in, in here, if there is no God, then there's no evil in the first place. So um, the, the argument that you can't escape today is the complaint about evil, but if there's no God, there's no evil. So, can I move on from this slide? Okay, great. C.S. Lewis said... My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So, so it's the problem, it's, it's this exact problem that I want to complain about this thing over here, but if there's no God, then... My, then my argument just falls down. So, but let's, let's take for a moment their, their argument. Let's, let's put on their argument, and let's see how other worldviews deal with this, the problem of evil. If you want to reject God, what are you left with? There are a few options. If you are an atheist, you have to say evil isn't real. Evil isn't real, God isn't real, because, because there's no standard. Therefore, it's just, it's just personal preference. We've, we've covered this before, but for the atheist who wants to say that, that there's no God, um, all they've done is taken away one solution. Because remember, every worldview has to deal with this problem. They cannot just look at the Christian and say, you Christian, I'm not going to believe in your God because of there's so much evil in the world. They too, because we all experience this problem, we all have this experience of so much evil and suffering in the world, so they can't say, I'm not going to believe in your God. What is their answer for the problem? The next two, Hindu and Buddhism, I haven't gotten to those worldviews yet to cover them. I'll get to them next week, actually. Um, But Hinduism just says suffering is an illusion. Actually, everything is an illusion because we just exist in the mind of God. So suffering is an illusion. God is an illusion. Evil is an illusion. You are an illusion. Um, And I find that to be rather unsatisfying. When I, am, when I am crushed under the weight of suffering, I don't find that to be an illusion. And Buddhism, Buddhism just says that desire is suffering. So, what that means is we desire things. We desire love, we desire children, we desire, you know, good, good things. But desiring things causes us suffering. Therefore, just stop wanting things. Just stop that. I mean, it, it, I understand. I, on, the, on the surface, that can make a little bit of sense that we, we, we covet because we want somebody's stuff or we want somebody's job or we want somebody's wife or we want something else. We, we desire things and therefore it causes us pain. So if we just stopped wanting things, problem solved, right? But, and I don't have time to go into this, what do we see in Scripture? Is that, is that the character of God? Does God desire things? Is God a God of desires? Does He tell us stop wanting things? No, He, he doesn't. He has desires. He has desires for you and me and relationship with us, and He pursued us. So, that is not what we see in reality, and that's not what we see in God either. So, what we need to get to is what is, the, what is the purpose of all of this? What is the purpose? We know that evil exists. We know that good exists. Is there a purpose to it? Of course, when, when I talked about atheism last week, there is no ultimate meaning and purpose in atheism. It's just all of your All of your good that you experience, all of your pain that you experience, it's all meaningless under an atheistic worldview. But what we want to look at is, is there actually a purpose to all of this? Because we can't know the purpose of evil or anything else if we don't know the purpose of life. And these are just some thoughts that I want to encourage you to think about we, when we complain about the problem of evil and we complain about things that are going wrong, it's because we have a sense of the way things ought to be. So, there is in that a sense of that we think that there is a purpose to it. There is an ought. There is a, this is wrong. This is not how, this is not the way it's supposed to be. It should be some other way. But, is the purpose of life to be pain-free and happy? Is it to be healthy and wealthy? Is that what we're here for? Because I think, that, I think that a lot of us, and myself included, because I can tell you what, I like comfort. I like comfort, I like my life to go smoothly, I like everything to fall into place, and I get very dismayed when it doesn't. I don't like it. But is, is that the purpose of life? And I would argue, no, it's not the purpose of life. From a Christian perspective, the purpose of life is to know and glorify God and to be conformed to the image of Christ. So, Jesus promised us tribulation. He promised us difficulty, but why? Why pain? And could He have done it some other way? Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the could he have done it some other way because I think it's more effective, an effective use of our time to talk about the way it is and how he did do it. And the reason why is because I want to reiterate over and over and over again the the um, omniscience of God and how he knows better than we do. And because we can get into these, into these difficulties, he... He knows for sure that I do that. Where where I'll say, but 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 but, and I'll think, yeah, but what about this? What about this? Couldn't you have? Why did you do this? And I can I can really get into a downward spiral, thinking of all of that. I have to remind myself of the truth of God, who He is, and and what He says, and and let what He says inform my my perspective, and not just let my own. I, it seems to me that there's something in Scripture that talks about not leaning on your own understanding. And I, I am someone who, who tends to like to lean on my own understanding, and it's gotten me in trouble a number of times, particularly when it comes to when you are in pain, and you are just trying to figure out what is going on and, and how long is this going to last. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. It's a point that I also want to add here that most of the time, when people come to the Lord, it's because of pain and suffering. Typically, when everything is going swimmingly, what do I need God for? I've got this all figured out. And so, God can use pain, to does use pain and suffering to bring us to the Lord. He also uses pain and suffering to refine us. We, we, not, only, we not only see that in Scripture, but for anyone who's gone through difficulties, if they don't go down the road of bitterness and hardness of heart, it will, they will see that refining process. I can tell you from personal experience that God is more real to me and my relationship with the Lord is closer for having gone through all of the pain and suffering that I've gone through. Why? Because it's forced me to, to dig deep into Him when I wouldn't have otherwise because I would have relied on myself. Had I, had I still retained that veneer of self-sufficiency. And I say veneer because we all, you know, as, as Americans, we have this, this sort of air we breathe of self-sufficiency and pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So it's, it can be very difficult to rely on God because we want to do it ourselves. But when you are in the midst of such pain and hardship, that you, you literally cannot see your way through, you're forced to depend on God. And then it, it, it pushes you closer to Him. Like I said, if you don't go the path of, of bitterness and resentment, which is, which is possible. And think about this too. People who get everything they want, we call them spoiled. I'm sure that you guys have seen kids who get everything that they want and everything is easy for them. They are, they are brats. They are not any people that you want to be around at all. God calls himself our father, not our grandfather. Now, I mean, grandparents, I will say this for a second, grandparents have this reputation, I think a well-deserved reputation of spoiling their grandkids, but I take a little bit of umbrage at that because I am a grandma and I am, in my granddaughter's life, I'm the toughest one. (laughs) So, if if God were a a grandparent from, you know, from my standard, that'd be pretty tough. But, but Scripture tells us to endure hardship as discipline, because God is treating you as His children. Now, again, I'd like to be honest, I don't like this. I really don't. I don't like discipline, I don't like hardship, but I recognize God to be treating me as His child, because those of us who are parents in the room, isn't that what, well, hopefully, isn't that what we did for our children? We don't just let them do whatever they want. We don't just um, give them no boundaries and no parameters. Why? Because we love them. Now, we, we don't like that when God does that to us because we want our own way, especially now in this culture where we worship at the altar of personal autonomy I wanna do what I wanna do, and I don't like this thing that's come into my life. I don't like this hardship I'm experiencing. And I've told God multiple times, and He knows I don't mean it, but I have said, God, can you just give me a break on the character development already? I mean, can you go work on someone else's character for a while? But He knows as I'm saying it, He knows that I don't mean it, because I don't want Him to leave me alone. I, I, I realize that it it hurts the discipline and the character development and the, and the conforming to the image of Christ, but he knows better than I do. And I even though I want things to be easy, I really don't if that's what he deems is better for me in the long run and for you. And the questions are, How can we develop courage without danger? How can we develop perseverance without obstacles, or patience without tribulation, or compassion without suffering? This is another thing that I've seen from my own life. I, um, in terms of spiritual gifts, one of my spiritual gifts is the prophetic, not not future-telling, but truth-telling. And before I went through a lot of the suffering that I've gone through, I could be much more harsh in my judgments. And, and I could say, look, the, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be this rude to people, but I would think to myself, look, this is right, this is wrong, what's the problem, why can't you see that? But when you go through suffering, you, you can still see the right and the wrong and the good and the bad, but you're not as likely to be just so, just so harsh about it in, in the way that you deal with people. Because don't we all want compassion? Don't we all want mercy when, when, when things are going on in our life as well? So here's, here's one other thing to think about, and we're going to move on to objections. Frank Turek wrote this great book, and I've mentioned it before, called Stealing from God, and he he asked the question, when someone dies, did God murder them? No. Causing or allowing someone to die is not murder for God because all life is His anyway. He is the creator of life, and only He can resurrect it. In fact, people never go out of existence. They just change locations. God is under no obligation to keep people alive here for 80 years. His plans for eternity are the ultimate point of this life anyway, so God is perfectly just to move you from this life to the next life at any age He chooses, two or 82. Again, it, it, this may not be emotionally satisfying if you lose someone or you deal with pain and hardship, but it is a good reminder to get us back to the proper view of who God is and His authority over all and His sovereignty over all and that He is the creator and we are the creature because too often, and I can speak for myself, too often I have my own views and I get mad when things don't go the way I think they should and I'll read things in Scripture that I don't like because I want things my own way. But God, if we, if we submit to His Lordship in these times of difficulties, it goes, it goes much better for us. So, I'm just going to cover a couple of objections because they're the main ones that you're not going to be able to escape from. Of course, I've already talked about how can there be a God with so much evil and suffering in the world. Again, I want to encourage you guys, as I've talked about throughout this series, to use your questions. When people, you, it, I mean, you, you're, you can present arguments when people, says, when people say this, how can there be a God with so much evil and suffering in the world? You can say, well, here's why, and here's why, and here's why, and here's why, but you can also ask them questions. You can draw them out because what you really want to get at is what's, what are they really objecting to and what really happened? that's That's going to get you a lot further there There can always be a time for you to present yes, but if there's no God then then there's no evil, et cetera, et cetera. But if you get them to if you get them to open up well can you can you help me to understand is it is it possible that if there were a God that he might have? reasons for allowing suffering at all. Now, I have heard atheists say, no, it's impossible. There cannot be any reason that any God would allow, and then he'll list a a string of, of terrible things that have happened. Well, the problem that the atheist then gets himself into is that he becomes omniscient in that moment. He has to be omniscient to know, to absolutely know that there is no Way that God could have any reason to allow pain and suffering in the world. So, think about questions that you can ask the atheist to draw them out, or or it doesn't have to be an atheist from whichever perspective they might be coming from, to draw them out. And another one is, why would God create a world like this? This, I've heard this, I've heard this a lot. Why would God create a world like this? Now, you could be, flippant and say, I don't know, why don't you ask God next time you see Him? But that's not going to get you anywhere at all. So, why… we can we can ask them… the the best question, I think, to ask them in that time, in that moment is, what kind of world do you think God ought to have created? To, again, get the dialogue flowing, to get them thinking too, because… I can't reiterate enough how little people think about these things. They make these statements that they really haven't thought through, and to get them to think, all right, because most people just want the problem of evil gone. They just want evil gone, and they think that God could have made some world where we existed but there was no evil. But if they think about what that world would be like, and get them thinking about it, there, there couldn't be any free will, there couldn't be really love, because love requires free will. And to, to ask them, to start asking them, what kind, of world, what kind of world should there be, and how can that world work? And you're not being confrontational, you're inviting them to talk to you. So, on the surface none of this again is emotionally satisfying but the real question that i invite all of us and all of them to ask it is what do we do with all of the evidence that we see and reality how do we we can we can stomp our foot and we can be angry about the situation about the suffering we go through about the suffering we see in the world what do we do with reality? And, and the, th- the, things that, the things that we see, the things that I've uh, presented. The thing about the Christian worldview is that the Bible is the story of God dealing with the problem of evil from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation, it is God dealing with the problem of evil. Now, a non-believer is not immediately going to accept that, however, it is something we need to have a deep and thorough understanding of because we can get, when we have these discussions with, with non-believers, we can start thinking, oh, you know, gosh, they, they, they might be right in some sense that, that it's so bad but we need to take a step back and say, what is it that God did to deal with this problem? Because Christianity deals with this problem far more thoroughly than any worldview you will run across. So, let's take a brief look at what God did. In the beginning, God created everything, really. And what did He say? He said it was good. But then… We have, but did God really say already in the book of Genesis, did God really say? And then there was disobedience, but God immediately comes in and he says, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons for he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon the chastisement upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here's what Jesus says that He does for us as even as we're going through this. He says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, And the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, because there is mercy, but there's also justice. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the, the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But wait, there's more. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, to the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That is what God has done, is doing, and will do to deal with this problem so thoroughly. So I want to wrap up. Oh, yes, Sheila. Oh, that was Isaiah 61 in the New Testament? Yeah. But yeah. I'm just he, wondering where. Oh, that, I didn't look up okay. that. I just That's went right. straight to Isaiah. Okay. It was Luke 4. She wanted to know where, where Jesus said that in the New Testament. Thank you, Ed. So really quickly, as we wrap up, a couple of things. For people, when you deal with people who are suffering... I want to I say a couple of things about that and a couple of things if you're dealing with suffering. When, people, when you are dealing with people who are suffering, I want to beg you, please stop with the platitudes. If people are really hurting, just patting them on the head and saying some trite statement is, is hurtful. I, I, it was a year and a half ago I lost this job. I loved this job so much, and it was really hard for me. And I was with a, a friend, a, an actual friend, not just an acquaintance. So I knew her, I knew her um, somewhat well, and, and she said, she took me by the shoulders, and she said, God is going to provide you a better job. And as gently as I could, I said, how do you know that? There's no guarantee of that, and I wasn't, I I, I was wanting to encourage her to be a little more careful about the glib statements. Um, But if you are suffering, what I want to encourage you is meditate on the Word. Meditate on the Word. Meditate on the Word. Your own thinking will lead you astray in these circumstances. If you just think and think and think and think and try to figure it out and, and puzzle your way through and lean on your own understanding, it's a recipe for disaster. You have got to get the, the truth of the word in yourself. And, and I also encourage you to fast. If, if, uh, if you're not doing that on a regular basis, if you're in the midst of suffering, it's very helpful. Also rely on others. God created us to be in relationship with Himself and others. Rely on them and ask for prayer and and tell them what you need. It's good if you know someone who's suffering to ask them what they need, but we have to be vulnerable too if we're in a place of suffering to ask for what we need as well if that's prayer, if that's someone to just come and sit with you. Um, Job's friends did a great thing in the beginning of Job before they went way off the rails. They just came and they sat with him. They didn't say anything. They just sat with him. That's perfect. One last quote, and then we're done. I love this quote. It's by Peter Kraft in this book called The God Who Loves You, and he says, everything think about this. Everything suffered by each cell of His body, us, is suffered by Him. It is literally true. Jesus experiences everything that you experience, the least of your joys and the greatest of your sorrows. You never suffer alone, or laugh alone, or pray alone, or even blink alone. Lo, I am with you always. Did you think that was empty rhetoric? He never spoke empty rhetoric, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Did you think that meant mere sympathizing? Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Did you think that was only an edifying myth? Whatever we make our brothers and sisters endure, we make him endure, because he is agape incarnate, and agape endures all things." The problem of evil and suffering is real, but God is the only one who has solved it. God is the only one who deals with it back then, now, and in the future with a, a, an, an ending that will be more glorious than, than we can imagine. But we suffer now in, today, in, in today's day and age, not just waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, so, rely on Him and rely on one another for the suffering that you go through and that others go through now. Let's pray. Father, thank You thank you for Your goodness. Thank You for, even in the midst of the questions that we have and the suffering that we go through and the hardship, that You never leave us nor forsake us. Thank You that... You are so good even when we don't understand. And thank you that you are loving, that you have mercy on us in our lack of understanding and our sheepish ways that we like to go all of our own ways. And you, and you keep pursuing and you keep pursuing. Would you help us to... Be even more salt and light to our hurting culture and our hurting world who has questions and pain that is driving them away from you. Help us to to be the good ambassadors to, to those people who would want to seek you if they thought that you exist. Would you bring people into our lives, people that we can minister to in grace and truth and compassion and gentleness the way that you deal with us. In Jesus' name, amen.